So who is, uh, who's into Christmas movies? Some of y'all. So I heard Hallmark out there. I was going to ask about Hallmark. I was like, anybody into Hallmark movies, Lifetime movies, whatever you want to, like, fill in the blank. So Home Alone. Home Alone's a wonderful Christmas movie. See, that's, that's like the only Christmas movie I will watch outside of Christmas season. So, <clears throat> so now that we know, okay, yeah, we all, we all like to watch Christmas movies uh, and everything. And uh, do, do any of you all feel like Christmas movie season starts a little too soon? Like they start at the beginning of November and it's like, guys, we got a couple of, you know, a couple of things that need to happen before then. But anyways, I'm, I am sometimes, I'm sometimes guilty of watching Christmas movies before. I didn't, I didn't mean for everybody to just start discussing Christmas movies and everything, but um, thank you. Uh, so I'm, I'm also guilty of watching Christmas movies before I think Christmas season should start, which I think it starts after Thanksgiving. I refuse to put up decorations until after Thanksgiving. Except this year I put up a tree because my wife wanted one and I didn't. So I decided to get one when she was gone. You're welcome. That's your Christmas gift. Surprise. Um, just kidding. But anyways, uh, there was this new Christmas movie that came out uh, that got me kind of thinking of the topic that we're on today. Uh, and this Christmas movie, it's kind of it's a remake, uh, an adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Does everybody know A Christmas Carol? Okay, okay, yeah, bah humbug. Sometimes my wife tells me that I'm Scrooge. I'm just like, okay, okay. I agree a little bit. Okay, so for those who don't, for those who don't know what A Christmas Carol is, the, the synopsis of the idea behind, the, behind this movie, this story, is that there's this real grumpy old man who basically hates everybody, uh, doesn't help tiny Tim or anybody else and is basically like, I'm going to shut down everything. And so he ends up being visited by the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future to show him, hey, guess what? You're, you're a really horrible person. And basically what you have to do to not be a horrible person is go do a bunch of nice things and you will no longer be a horrible person. So there's a new movie that's doing a little spinoff of this whole idea or this synopsis. And it's basically the, the idea of this movie is that every single year, Somebody like Scrooge is visited every single year by the ghosts of past, present, and future. And every single person in there is like, oh, okay, you get somebody who ends up being redeemed during this story. But the little spinoff that they put in this story is that uh, while they're going through their files of people who they can try to redeem, is that there are files that say, oh, you can be redeemed on the front of it. And then there's also other files that say unredeemable. So the whole story is that, oh, guess what? I'm going to go and help redeem this person who is unredeemable because, well, I was redeemed because I was Scrooge, and therefore I'm one of these people who is now dead who is going around helping people be redeemed and showing them that you can be redeemed if you just do something good. And so this whole idea, we actually see this idea in most Christmas movies, is that, oh, you know what? Things are going horribly or somebody's really bad. And if you just do something nice, especially during the Christmas season, if you do something nice, then you're going to be redeemed and you're a good person afterwards. Um, 
But unfortunately, the, uh, the Christmas movies are a lie. And so I always have an issue with that afterwards. I watch them and I feel good afterwards, but then I was like, wait a minute. This isn't really how this works. So what we're going to look at is, we're going to look at a story here. We're picking up in Luke 22, and we're going to kind of look at a story of one of the disciples and see, well, how does redemption actually work? And how does it play out in this story? And, and was it just, oh, he just had to do something good or something nice, and, you know, therefore he just, it just paints over all the bad that he did. Um, but first, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna define the word redeem and redemption. So the definition that I found uh, was for redeem is that it is to compensate for the faults or bad aspects of something. And the word redemption is very similar to it. Uh, it means the action of saving or being saved. So this idea that we normally see in the movies is that somebody is going, needs to be redeemed. And the redemption typically comes from them basically saving themselves or doing something to save themselves because, hey, you know, you just did a lot of bad before this. And if you just do good, and, it, and it's really, it drives me insane because it's one good thing during Christmas and it just, they redeem themselves by doing that. And I'm like, that, that doesn't work for, for you, for what you just did. But we're going to look at what redemption actually is and how it actually works. And so we're going to pick up in Luke 22. Uh, I'm actually going to jump to the very middle of Luke 22. And this is where we're going to uh, see this redemption story actually taking place. And then we're going to go back and I'm going to give a little bit of context to this here. So in Luke 22, uh, verses 31 through 34, uh, this is Jesus talking to Peter. And he says to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he says to him, he says, Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus responds, I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny me three times that you know me. So today, I'm going to want us to, I want us to focus on Peter's story. Uh, I want us to get some context also while we look at this here uh, to see what's actually going on, where we are, because we just kind of picked up just in the middle of the story. Uh, it's kind of like how some of those movies start. You're like, wait, what's going on? And then they go back and tell you a little bit of what's going on. That's what we're going to do here real quick. So the book of Luke, I'm going to explain a little bit about the book of Luke, and then we're going to go back and forth, and we're going to look in some other books to see the full story of what's going on. The book of Luke itself is written kind of like a report. Uh, so Luke wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus. He wasn't one of the disciples. So he actually went around and asked a lot of people, hey, what was going on? So when you read the book of Luke, it doesn't read like a story, but it reads more like somebody writing a newspaper article. So this is very much, uh, this is actually part one that Luke wrote. He, the second part is Acts. And these were both letters that he wrote to wrote to somebody uh, to let him know, hey, these are the facts and what has gone on. And so when we're looking at Luke, I'm going to hit all these bullet points kind of like he does here, and then we're going to look at the book of John 
because John was an eyewitness, and he gives like a little bit more details. It's, it reads more like a story, like, hey, I, I was there, so I know what was going on. So we're going to look at that a little bit more. So first we're going to go through, and we're going to look at everything that's going on, what leads us up to this point. So Luke 22, 1 through 23, it starts off in verses, I believe, 1 through 5, 1 through 6. Uh, there's a plot to kill Jesus. So you see that the, the high priests, the Pharisees, everybody's planning on, hey, we, we need to, we're going to kill Jesus because there are just way too many people following him. And then in those same verses, you also see that, uh, I didn't put it in here, but Judas has also decided, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to betray Jesus. I'm going to go talk to these guys. They're going to offer me some money, and I'm going to agree to do this. So soon, when Jesus is by himself outside of the crowds, I'm going to betray him. What else you see here in these verses is that uh, this is about time for the Passover supper. Uh, so Jesus is getting ready for this, and he sends out his disciples. Hey, go get ready for this. You're going to meet this person doing this specific thing, which was really odd. They go. They see him doing something odd. They meet with the guy. He says, sure, got a place for you. Let's go. We'll do this. And then near the end of, tw- uh, near the end of these passages, we see that the Lord's Supper starts here. And then right after the Lord's Supper, there's a lot of conversations that start to take place. We're going to look at these conversations in a little bit of detail here. Uh, but these conversations start to take place at the end of the Lord's Supper. We hear at the end of verses uh, 23 and pick up in 24. All these conversations, when you read the other Gospels and you try to compare them, some say, well, they were happening while they were eating. Some say, well, they're happening right after they ate and when they're in the garden. So it can get a little confusing, but think about it this way. These conversations are happening from the time that they were eating to the time that they were going out to the garden for Jesus praying. So it isn't just saying, oh yeah, it all just happened here or here, but these are conversations that are happening throughout this entire time uh, until they get to the garden and for Jesus to pray. So these next verses here, we're going to pick up in this conversation, verse 24 through 26. So right after they're done with the Lord's Supper, we pick up here, verse 24. And we see, it says, Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he, that is Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. So this is kind of a little confusing conversation. I'm like, what does this mean? What's going on here? So to give a little bit of background for this one as well, uh, this is not the first conversation that the disciples have had about, hey, who is the greatest among us? This is actually the third one recorded in chronological history about who is going to be the greatest. So what exactly are they asking about who is going to be the greatest? Because oftentimes we think, oh, okay, is this when they get to heaven? Like, who's going to be the greatest? Is there going to be like, is there going to be a scale of, you know, where you are or anything? No, that's, that's not what they were talking about because they were actually confused as to why Jesus came. So they're thinking that Jesus is going to lead a revolution or a revolt and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. So their whole mind and what they're thinking is kind of like, if you put it this way, if you think about uh, Alexander the Great, after he conquers the known world uh, and he dies, what happens to all of his lands? Well, it gets, it gets divided between his, basically his four generals, his four kings. They divide it up. And so the apostles here are all arguing about this, about, okay, 
who's going to get the greatest allotment? So they believe that because there's 12 of them, once this is, once they're revolted, once it's done, then this is all going to get divided amongst the 12 of them. And so this is a conversation that they have often. And every single time, Jesus refutes it and tells them something, and they're kind of sitting there a little bit confused. So when we're looking at these conversations, we keep this in mind that they don't, they're not sure exactly what type of redemption is coming. They don't know exactly what Jesus is talking about because they're looking for this Messiah to deliver them from Rome. They're not looking for a Messiah or a Savior to deliver them from their sins. So we're going to go and look at this next passage here. So right after that conversation that they have about, hey, who's going to be the greatest, that's when Jesus tells Peter that, hey, you're going to deny me. And so right after that, then we see that in through verses 39 through 46, we see that Jesus is praying in the garden. And then we see shortly after that, and during that time where he's praying, Judas shows up. Uh, He comes in there with the high priests and the guards, and he betrays Jesus. And then that's where we're going to pick up here again, verse 49, is when Judas comes up and betrays Jesus. And then we see this in verse 49. It says, when those around him saw what was going on, what was going to happen, Jesus being betrayed, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this, and touching his his ear, he healed him. Well, then the question arises, well, who cut off his ear? Well, how do we know uh, who cut off his ear? Because I'm sure most of us know who cut off his ear, but how do we know that? Well, like I said, we're going to look at other passages to fill in the blanks and see, okay, who was the eyewitness there and who actually saw this? So if we look at John 18, 10 through 11, it says, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put, away your, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Verse 54 of Luke 22, we see it says that they seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. So we're kind of seeing, hey, this is, uh, what is Peter's character so far? Well, he, he thinks he'll never betray Jesus. He's very much gung-ho, very much like, hey, you know what? I'm going to protect you, Jesus. I'm going to be right there with you, and uh, they're going to try to take you. Uh, I'm going to use my sword to protect you. Um, but one thing we can assume out of this text is that he wasn't a very good swordsman because who actually tries to cut off somebody's ear? I think he missed Really, I think, you know, he's a fisherman. He doesn't use swords. I think he just missed, really. But it's, it's okay, because, you know, Jesus healed his ear, and then he was just like, you know what, put that away. It's okay. I don't need you to protect me. This is what's meant to be. Verse 56 and 57. So this is where we're picking up. So Peter follows at a distance in verses 56 through 57. And he's kind of watching what's happening when they take Jesus to the, priest, the high priest's house. And he says that when a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, 
this man was with him too, but he, Peter, denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. Verse 58, after a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Peter responds, man, I am not. Verse 59 through 62, says, about an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord looked, then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So we're going to stop for a minute to think on this passage here real quick. So what was Peter's character like before this, before we see him at this very end? He says he went outside and wept bitterly. From what you know about Peter, does Peter come across as somebody who's just going to go and weep bitterly? No, he's, he's actually quite arrogant, quite brash, very much like, you know what, I'm going to be right there with you, Jesus. I'm going to do what, what I'm going to do. All these others may betray you, but I'm going to be here with you, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to protect you. didn't quite work out the way he thought it was. Because Jesus goes and tells him, well, you're going to deny me, Peter. Don't, don't think so highly of yourself or to think that you're going to do this or you're going to accomplish this. But you are going to deny me. And so Peter recalls this conversation. And have you ever had a, an instance where you have done something against somebody or wronged somebody? And they were right there, and you didn't really pay attention to it until you see them face-to-face or catch their eye and realize, oh, you know what, I really did just wrong you. This is kind of what's going on in Peter's mind here, because it says that Jesus turns and sees him. If you imagine it this way, it's that Peter's kind of inside in the courtyard, but he's not in the house, and so he's kind of outside there, so, Pe- so Jesus would look out the window. We can see the details of this are actually in John. He looks out the window and he sees Peter and he catches his eye and Peter's just like, oh, I just did what you said I was going to do. And he realizes that he can't do what he said to Jesus the way he was going to do. So as we look at this and we realize that Peter can't do these things on his own and his whole idea of what Christ came for, what Christ was going to save us from, was entirely wrong. And then he has this realization that, you know, I can't do anything to help this salvation, or I can't add anything to the salvation. And the same for each of us. I like how uh, Jonathan Edwards puts it. He puts it this way. He says that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So this is kind of the realization that Peter is coming to is while he looks at Jesus and he sees, oh, I messed up. He understands that, you know what, I, I didn't do anything and I couldn't do anything. And the same for each of us. That we can't do some type of good 
for our salvation. We can't redeem ourselves, kind of like the Christmas movies want to tell us every single year. I mean, I love Christmas movies, but they're not telling us the truth. Well, the truth is, is that I can't redeem myself. I can't do enough good to make up for who I am and what I've done. And this is what Peter is realizing here. And if you recall what our definition was at the very beginning about what redemption was or what redemption is, is the act of saving something or somebody. Said, you know, Peter can't do that, and neither can we. So we're going to actually look at, we're going to go to John, because the conclusion of Peter's story isn't in the book of Luke. It kind of leaves us there. So it's kind of like, man, what, what happened with Peter? Well, we, we know Luke explains what happens with Peter in the book of Acts, so we can draw that conclusion. But John actually gives us the account of what happens afterwards. So in John 21, give a little bit of context as to what's happening here. Jesus has already been betrayed. Jesus has already been crucified. He's already risen from the dead, and he's already appeared to the disciples. And here he comes to them again. So they're out fishing, and then they see somebody on the shore because they're not, ca- they're not catching anything. And then they see somebody out on the shore, and this person tells them, oh, you know, cast your nets on this side. I mean, they're fishermen. Don't they know how to fish? When if they know how to do that? It's like, you know, I'm, I'm proficient at certain things, and I don't need people coming along being like, hey, do this. And I'm just look at them like, I know. It's kind of like somebody telling you, you're saying something's broken, some electronic is broken, and somebody goes, well, did you turn on the power or check if it's plugged in? Yes. We all know this. It, you can imagine the disciples had the same type of response. They're sitting there like, what do you mean? To cast our nets over here. Fishermen, we've tried this already. So they do it. They cast their nets on that side. They listen to Jesus, and oh, you know what? They end up catching a bunch of fish. They bring it in, and then Peter actually realizes, oh, this is Jesus. He hops out of the boat and just swims to the shore. And then they come in, and Jesus has breakfast with them. So this picks up right after he has breakfast with them once it's done. Uh, In verse 15, John chapter 21, verse 15 says, When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter responds, he says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, is Jesus' response. A second time, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time. Do you love me, he said. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. So if you recall, if you recall there's a few times that we've talked about this, uh, about grief, that there's a worldly grief and that there's a godly grief. A worldly grief doesn't repent. A worldly grief is just like, I'm sorry, I got caught. But this grief here that we see when Peter is asked a third time is a godly grief. It's a grief of repentance. It's a grief that knows, you know, I, I can't do this without you. 
But it's interesting when we look at this, right here, this conversation, notice how many times Jesus forgives him. We've noticed this before. Peter denies him three times. Jesus forgives him three times. Not only does Jesus forgive him three times, but when we read scripture, we actually see that whenever something's done three times, it emphasizes what's being done. So if you ever look at uh, the book of Revelation, you'll see the angels around God's throne. And what do they say? They say holy. They don't say it once, but they do it in repetition, and they say it three times whenever they say it. They say holy, 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 because they are emphasizing the fact of how holy God is. So Jesus is doing the same thing with Peter. Peter not only did he deny Jesus three times, but Jesus forgave him. And he lets him know three times that he has forgiven him and that he has restored him. So when we're looking at this, and we see Peter is being redeemed here, how exactly does that work, and how does that work for us? Well, we're going to look at some other passages here. Uh, Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. It says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. So we can actually see in, we'll do one more passage here in 1 Peter. We can know Peter's redemption story was completed because of what Peter talks about later on and what Peter says. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So when we read what Peter says here, does Peter say anything about what he did to earn redemption? No. There's two people that he refers to, God the Father and God the Son. And he talks about what God the Father planned and what, the God, and what God the Son did. And so we see that redemption, unlike these Christmas stories, it doesn't come from us or what we do. It doesn't come from like how good we can be at Christmas or any other time of the year. But it's all dependent on what Jesus has done. I'm going to look at one more passage. I actually thought about this when coming over here, and then we'll close. But I want you to think that, think about it this way. When it comes to redemption, we, can, we do not redeem ourselves because we cannot redeem ourselves. And so to show you this, I'm going to look at Romans here. I'm going to look at Romans 5. So Romans 5, picking up in verse 6. It says, for, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone 
might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So if we think about it this way, Peter just denies Christ, and he runs off weeping bitterly. And then Christ is crucified. While being crucified, all the sins of us are being... Can you hear me? Okay. All the sins of us are being laid on him. And he has in mind, Jesus has in mind, those whom he is redeeming, those whom he is saving. So while Peter runs off weeping bitterly because he realizes what he has done, and Jesus knowing that, oh yeah, you sinned against me by denying me, he knows exactly what he is being crucified for. And it's to redeem him. And he's keeping in mind, hey, I'm redeeming Peter. I'm saving Peter by doing this. And that's the same for each of us who puts our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus. That he has died for our sins. And that he has risen from the dead, conquering both sin and death. So with that, y'all are dismissed to your groups for discussion questions. <laughs>